Thought-provoking? No question. Informative? You bet. This is Talk of the Town on News Talk 1290 CJBK. One of the most popular parts of our program traditionally over the last number of years has been left, right, and center. And these days, with our guests being as busy they are and as busy as they are and the way our format works, uh, we never know exactly for sure when Bob and Jeff are going to drop by, but it's a pleasure to have them both here today. Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer with us on this edition of Left, Right, and Center. Gentlemen, a nice to have you here again. Good morning, Jim. Thank you. Uh, this part of the program, of course, is, as regular listeners will know, but new listeners may not, is where we take a look at issues of the day from shall we say, differing political perspectives. It doesn't mean that, that uh, Bob and Jeff never agree on things. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they disagree on the most interesting things from my perspective. Sometimes I agree with one or the other, and sometimes neither one of them, and it's my job to try to keep things rolling along. That's why we call it left, right, and center. I want to ask both of you fellas today about uh, a topic that I know is deeply confusing for many Canadians. Uh, but I know you guys are among the, the, the better informed people of my acquaintance on, on, on what's going on in the world around us. So I want to ask you about Kyoto and Mr. Kretchen's commitment to, uh, to have Canada conform to the Kyoto Accords. It's going to mean, we are told by uh, uh, the conference board, one of the big business uh, organizations, that we're going to lose 450,000 jobs if we do this. The Liberal government's own figures indicate at least 200,000 jobs we lost, although those numbers apparently were taken out of the confidential report given to cabinet, but they were leaked, and that's what the government's own guys say. It's going to cost us 200,000 jobs if we conform to Kyoto. So even if you take the, the optimistic one, which is the government's one, it's still, that's a lot of people out of work. Dr. David Suzuki was on uh, Jim Chapman Live last night on Rogers TV, and he said he doesn't believe that. He thinks there'll probably be a net job gain because there'll be all sorts of new technologies springing up, uh, compliance uh, with the type of equipment that we're going to need to uh, comply with this, and abatement procedures and all of this sort of stuff. He thinks that it's uh, not inconceivable. We might even have a net job gain. And beyond that, as Dr. Suzuki said, it's really not about the economy anyway. It is about people. It's about the environment. It's about our ability to breathe the air today and our children to breathe the air tomorrow. And the question that he posed last night and posed it very forcefully was if we can't afford to do it, whatever the cost, then who can? And if we don't, who will? Bob, I'll start with you. What do you make of all this? And I know it's a convoluted issue, but what do you make of, of well, Kyoto? It, you can't make anything of Kyoto. I've read so much about it, and it's so contradictory. Um, there's nothing really that specific in it. I remember a while ago, you had a guest from UWO, and I'm afraid I forgot his name. He was a, a doctor prof professor from the university on your show last season on the Cablecast. Mm -hmm. And he, you were talking to him about Kyoto. And basically more about the scientific evidence of the global warming and issues of that. And mm -hmm. he was getting into the issues. And everything I thought he said was quite sensible. And then at the end of the show, you asked him about Kyoto. Would it do much? And he, he told you right there it wouldn't. He said it might, it might affect one half of 1% of 10% of some emissions somewhere, mm -hmm. you know. And he says that may, may not even be effective. But the reason he supports it is because at least we have some mechanism in place. Well, that to me is not a reason to support something as dramatic as Kyoto appears to be. I mean, it seems to me the only answer that anyone can come up with for pollution and, and issues like that is to stop production, to stop our livelihood, our, our, our way of living, and to ask us to sacrifice and drop our standard of living. You know, the, the, the big brown cloud that's over the planet Earth that we see f from the satellite space isn't over North America, it's over the South Pacific. And that's where the worst pollution is. And that's because 
technology hasn't advanced to the degree in the South Pacific as it has in the West. And I think that we're already on the right path, that we don't need all these draconian actions, you know, when, when we're already going in the right direction. As you said in David Suzuki's book, he's got a lot of positive news, mm-hmm. mostly coming out of the private marketplace, by the way, because the private market's going to react to pollution concerns because that's what its marketplace wants. And that's that's basically the ideological battle over the environment. Should we call for sacrifice and use for the force of government, or should we call for uh, cooperation and use a force of persuasion in marketplace prices? That, and, I, and I go for the latter, because I don't think we have to give up our liberties, our style of living, or anything to improve the pollution situation. Jeffrey, what about you? Well, I guess... Uh the idea of of trying to clean up bad things in our environment is nothing new. We've been doing that since we crawled out of the caves, and it wasn't that long ago that we had sewage running into our rivers and uh, sort of uh, all kinds of disease and all that resulting from that. So the idea of trying to make our, our where we live a cleaner place is nothing new, and this is just sort of the latest, uh, I guess, um, thing in the news about it. Broadly speaking, um, I uh, think that... For us, surely as a civilization, the race is to try to sort of cut back on sort of the uh, the way that we're sort of consuming the planet and stuff that uh, at the end of the day, hopefully we're smart enough to figure out a way to sort of keep on living around here. Um, it seems to me sooner or later we have to sort of uh, get serious about our air, for instance. This past summer, I've had a hell of a time with the air uh, mm-hmm. in the city on a number of days where I can tell I just feel sick from this air. And as far as I know, I don't have asthma, but I guess a lot of kids do that didn't before. Yep. And so the question is sort of, well, we've got to get going on this, you know, sooner or later. And, and if not now, when? And, it, and by definition, I guess an agreement requires somebody to do something they don't want to do. If it was free to sort of uh, say we're going to, um, you know, have cars that pollute less or whatever, they wouldn't have to legislate. Um, that's just not going to happen. To me, uh, as a government, the government's role is to educate people so that they decide this is a good thing to do. Uh, when we hear about the scaremongering, the 450,000 jobs, the first thing about that was that the subtext was if the United States doesn't do anything about its own pollution, mm-hmm. then that's what they're saying because they can produce more cheaply. Clearly, the United States is going to do something. They're, they're, right now, they're saying not involved, not you know, on board for Kyoto, but... You know, the states is uh, is not just going to say we're not going to do anything about our pollution at all. And we've seen examples in California, for instance, where they've got uh, emission standards for cars that are quite tough, but the world hasn't ended there. Mm-hmm. There's lots of cars there still, and they seem to get along okay. So uh, I guess, broadly speaking, I think we need to be c- continually thinking about how do we get better at sort of not polluting where we live. And, and their smog alerts have dropped dramatically, too. Yeah, well, in, that's in California. That's, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I guess that's sort of why the why they adopted it initially was the location of Los Angeles being right next to the, yeah. the, the mountains there. Yeah. That, that uh, it just was so smoggy. Uh, I'd like to hope we we sort of get on board before it comes to that in a way. Um, so fundamentally, I think first thing is that uh, we need government to be sort of selling the public on the idea. You need to come back against this four hundred fifty thousand job um, scaremongering. We see that all the time. Yeah, but the government it's, it's, it may, that may be scaremongering, but the government's own people say two hundred thousand. Well, jobs. The government's own people. The government is a big place, and you've got uh, it's uh, it's uh, trade people who are a lot different than its environmental people. For instance, you've got uh, economists and uh, and business people in government who are who are quite right wing. Who I would agree with nothing about it. Uh, so they may have that view, but. I bet you, the, I guarantee you that there are all kinds of environmental types in the Ministry of the Environment saying, no, that's not going to happen. Suzuki's more on board. The other thing, too, is that when it comes to saying stuff like this, we have to uh, develop new technologies. Somebody's going to invent this stuff, and the question is, who's smart enough in the world to be first off the mark? And we have 
companies like Ballard in Canada, for instance, with the hydrogen mm-hmm. cells, it's doing terrific work, uh, you know, and they're going to make all their money because they're developing things that don't pollute. Uh, so Canada can choose to be on board for that kind of thing. And I think we've done pretty well with high tech. Like, I think we're as well positioned as any country to, uh, to benefit from that. So uh, broadly speaking, Kyoto, uh, it's good that we're talking as a world, you know, that we're able to get long enough to sort of agree on some things. Uh, we've got to do something about this error or I'm going to die. Let's go to the phones where Mark is waiting. 643-1290 is our telephone number, star 1290 on the Rogers AT&T. If you'd like to join our discussion with Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz on today's edition of Left, Right, and Center, you're welcome to do so, and we do welcome Mark. Hello, Mark. Hi, Jim. Yes, sir. Well, I just want to make a comment, and uh, I wonder if particularly, particularly Jeff Schlemmer could quote on it, or uh, comment on it. Yeah. Um, it seems to me, since the Coyote Accord has come around in discussion, that it's really brought about a, a massive um, contradiction in the left, or at least one element of the left. And what I'm referring to specifically is people like Maude Barlow and her bunch who are always claiming that any type of trade agreement is an abrogation of our sovereignty. And, oh, no, we can't do this because, you know, other countries will be able to tell us what to do. And um, they, they use that sort of protection as viewpoint as, as a way to, to oppose a lot of trade agreements. It seems to me that the Kyoto Accord is going to be the biggest abrogation of our sovereignty of, uh, uh, since anything, more than NAFTA or the Free Trade Agreement. And I found it very interesting that Maud Barbo specifically and her bunch and a lot of people on the left aren't really commenting on that. So that's just what I wanted to throw up. Jeffrey, it's all yours. Yeah. That's a good question. Well, and and, and uh, the point you make is a good one, and I think that there's a, a lot of misunderstanding about the concern around globalization, and I don't think that anybody that I've talked to uh, seriously suggests that we shouldn't have global agreements, but what they're very skeptical about is the particular agreements that they've presented with so far. So we've had the uh, the NAFTA, for instance, where we've got these situations where um, we find that uh, that we lose the ability to do things that, uh, well, for instance, the, the, the main one that's sort of always the, the bellwether for me is this one about the ethyl gasoline, you know, the additive, mm-hmm. that uh, we get into this agreement, and the agreement says that uh, when the United States bans this stuff, we can't ban it in Canada, um, because it's an American company selling it in Canada, we end up having to pay them whatever it was, millions and millions of dollars in damages. So it's not that globalization is bad, it's the particular agreements are not well negotiated, we're not getting a good deal. Uh, you know, the left certainly has always been in favor of things like the UN, for instance. I think that the, the left doesn't have a problem with the idea of sort of the world trying to get along together. And I, and I think I mentioned uh, uh, last program about, uh, you know, the history of mankind has been to try to expand beyond its little uh, little sort of universe into a, a bigger place to get to get organized and get together. So the United States came together as there were states initially, and then they grouped together into the United States and became a country. The next logical step is to try and have a larger uh, 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 government, a larger organization. So, but I think there is a lot of misunderstanding because I think a lot of people say the left just doesn't want to, to talk to other countries. They don't like globalization at all. But in fact, what it is that they don't like is they don't like uh, getting into situations where we can't control things like child labor, where we can't control things like pollution, which is a big part of it. It's just that we need to make sure that the agreements we do are good agreements. That's my take anyway. Fair enough, Mark. Thank you, sir. 643-1290 is our telephone number. We're going to come back in a moment. If you'd like to join us, you're welcome to get in on the discussion with Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer. 643-1290 puts you in the middle at left, right, and center. Bob, you said earlier, talking about Kyoto, you said earlier about the market, uh, you know, the market will solve this problem for us, or words to that effect, that the market uh, will, will, will seek solutions because that's what the consumer wants. What if the consumer doesn't want that? Because it seems to me, and we talked about this a little bit earlier today, there are a lot of consumers out there who want to continue consuming. 
That's true. That's why we have private property rights, so that if some consumer who has a habit that affects your life and your property, you should have a mechanism to stop him from crossing that line. That's why governments do have a legitimate jurisdiction over issues like air pollution mm -hmm. and setting certain standards. But we have to understand, you know, we, we can talk about standards and, and, and scientific studies and everything till we're blue in the face, but, you know, I think the missing element here is the personal. What does this personally mean to us? You gave a good example of it this morning. You suggested to people, well, what are you willing to give up? Are you willing to pay a little more? Are you willing not to go to Disney World mm -hmm. this, this summer? You know, you separate your needs and your wants. Well, I think needs and wants are one and the same thing. The last time I went to Disney World, I needed to go because I'm, <laughs> I'm a workaholic, mm -hmm. so I had to go down there. And quite frankly, I would recommend anyone go visit Disney World and Epcot Center because this is a showcase of technology. That, that paves the way to the solution to the problems we're talking about. Check out the Nestle building, the Nestle building, how they're growing food out of what seems to be thin air. They serve it right there in the restaurant. Um, the, the big oil companies have built pavilions that are completely solar panel operated, and everything inside the building actually runs on the solar power that you're going to see. So these are already energy-efficient communities. It's mm -hmm. the community of the future. That's what Epcot Center is. So, you know, to tell people to give up their 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 lifestyle i don't think that's the answer and david suzuki says well we're going to replace all these lost jobs you know with compliance technologies well give you an example of what why you should never have a technology dependent on legislation i wouldn't be the guy that wanted to invest in it because you could never tell when the next government gets in they change the legislation and your years of investment go out the window consider all the restaurant and bar owners right now who had compliance technology foisted on them for secondhand smoke. They had all these expensive fans and air ducts. Now that they put, the, put it in there, we got a new crew in there that, never mind that, we're going to outlaw smoking. So all that money went into a non-investment. Might as well not mm -hmm. have put those things in there, because you can't trust a politician further than you can see them. And I, I hate to say that, but it's true. They're, they're not guided by rational principles. They're guided by political principles, which means get elected the numbers, and whatever gets me in, that's what I'll tell the public. And that's fundamentally what it's about. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be overly cynical, but that's generally what happens. And, you know, it used to be uh, Dr. Walter Block, for example, who used to be the senior economist of Fraser Institute, um, his argument was that the whole environmental movement has become the latest focus of the anti-capitalist movement, because basically their answer to everything is cut production, go after the businessman, go after the consumer, you know, just go after that commercial society. And even the alternate technology they want, though, re depends upon advanced technologies in the commercial society. You, you know how much pollution that, uh, that even air-driven uh, windmills cause because of the batteries that, that, that they charge up and things and the chemicals they have to put in those batteries? There are some nightmare stories about the pollution caused by alternate technologies. It might not be the same kind of pollution mm -hmm. that's spewing into the air, but it does exist. And it's, some of it's volatile, some of it's poisonous, some of it's very chemical. You've got all these battery-charged things now in, in a different delivery system. Um, well, that's part of it. You know, we can't, we can't just avoid the whole pollution issue. Yeah, that, uh, I think you're right in the sense that it really is more technically complicated than any of us can hope to understand, and a lot comes back to who you're going to trust at the end of the day. And, uh, and I guess to some extent that does come back to your ideology. Do you tend to trust business more than, uh, more than government or vice versa? I guess uh, one thing that I'm not willing to give up if anybody asks is my high-flow toilet 
after having seen uh, an episode <laughs> on King of the Hill of the low flows at uh, <laughs> uh, Detroit. What about your you know, the low flows? You've got to flush two and three times. Saves a lot of energy. Well, what about, yeah, but, yeah, but what about you? You got a nice car, Jeffrey, and not not an overly expensive. But you have a very nice automobile, but it's not the most fuel efficient car on the road. Uh, why don't you buy a real fuel efficient car? Why don't we all buy fuel efficient cars? We know that would help. We know that would help beyond any shadow of a doubt. That would help in terms of reducing our consumption of a finite resource, and 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 the modern cars are are that much less polluting than than some of the older ones. Why don't we all just go and buy three-cylinder run runabouts? Well, I guess there's a couple things. One is that, uh, as it happens right now, I have, I have a little Toyota, so it actually is a, not a bad one, although it's not uh, for fuel efficiency. I just happen to like small cars because they're zippy, but, uh, and I'm getting rid of my older kids. They're, they're not hanging around, so mm -hmm. as soon as I can, I have a two-seater sports car, which in itself, I suppose one could argue, is not the most fuel-efficient car because I want it to go fast. Uh, but that's a good question. Uh, one of the things that I'm sort of aware of is that I have around my house to make sure that I never have cookies or chips or ice cream in the house because mm -hmm. if it's there, I'll eat it. Yes. If I don't buy it, I won't. Me too. And so, uh, to me, it's sort of a similar kind of thing that if it's out there and I am and I am tempted by it, I'll buy it. But if uh, if it, if I can't buy the car that pollutes like crazy, even though it's fast and zippy or whatever, then I won't. And and I, and, and in the big picture, I'll think I'm better for it. But there, I have moments of weakness, <laughs> and in those moments of weakness, I need to be sort of saved from myself. Okay, we're going to come back and talk about being saved by yourself or from yourself with Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer as Left, Right, and Center continues here on Talk of the Town. I want to try to wrap up our discussions of, about the Kyoto situation here by asking each of my guests, both of whom are very involved politically, what you think is going to happen as a result of this. Mr. Kretchen has said that we're going to do this by Christmas, that Canada is going to ratify by Christmas. There's a, a very strong pro-business lobby out there that's pushing for national debate on this, that wants to see all Canadians participate in the discussion of whether this is a good idea or not. Mr. Kretchen, we're told, sees this as part of his elusive legacy and i'd like to ask each of you what you make of of what the future is liable to bring us jeff what do you think is going to happen is kretchen going to simply push this forward and get it done uh, well, I think that he that he will, and uh, I guess the main reasons. Well, there are several. One is that I guess it's something that uh, that uh, doesn't surprise me particularly that Canada would be interested in the Kyoto Accord because of our reputation as being sort of uh, um, I don't know moderate uh, in sort of the amongst the uh, community of nations. That uh, it's the kind of thing that I would think that we would normally be involved in. Um, in Kretchen's case, of course, he's got <clears throat> the clock ticking away, so he can't wait too long if he wants to take credit for it. It'll be interesting to see what Paul Martin does about it because he's. He's a little on the fence at this point, and I guess he's trying to, you know, when you're when you're the uh, leader in waiting, uh, you just don't want to annoy anybody, so you don't say anything too strong. But he was the environment critic, uh, you know, back in uh, the late '80s, I mm -hmm. guess. So uh, he certainly is knowledgeable about this stuff, and on record as being somebody who strongly supports the uh, the environment. So uh, he he's the guy that will really make or break it, I think. Gretchen will say we'd like to do this, but realistically, if Martin wants to kill it, he could kill it after that. Um, I think though that. Uh, Tactically, probably the government would also feel that it's better to do it sooner than later because it prevents the um, the other side from getting ramped up, from getting the public relations uh, spin going, and so on. Um, that can build this inertia, and it's like a principle of criminal law that in order to win a, uh, a criminal case as a defense defense lawyer, you don't have to prove that your guy didn't do it. You just have to create enough confusion they can't tell what the heck's going on, and then you're acquitted. So similarly, if the um, if the lobby against it can create enough confusion around it, then uh, and there isn't that public support that I think that uh, Martin would be much more likely to kill it after. So I think they probably want to move quicker rather than slower. 
Bob, what do you what do you make of all of it? Do you think? Oh, that's I, see, I think we're going to see a continuation of the interprovincial <laughs> and federal government tra- wars going on again because mm-hmm. the provinces are not on board for this. Mm-hmm. They're closer to the people. They're closer to the money, and they know that if they sign Kyoto, it's going to cost their government support. It's going to cost ca- Canadians jobs. It's going to cost you know in many ways. And I don't think the benefit, you know, when, whenever you're talking cost versus benefit, the benefit should always be greater than the cost. Otherwise, you don't do it. And right now, no one's convinced me of that. So far, the cost is immensely greater than any stated benefit, even by the purporter, supporters of, of, of this stuff. So I can't be, be behind that, and I just see it as another reason for the provinces to continue having a conflict with the federal government, which sometimes I think is what John Cretchen's goal in life is. Is there no, <laughs> is there no room in, uh, for either of you with the idea that it's not about the economy, that it's about the future, and that, as Suzuki said last night, if we can't, if we can't afford to do it, nobody can afford to do it. Well, I'm surprised that Ernie Eves actually seems to be on board for that. Like, he's not coming out and, and uh, doing the Ralph Klein dancing all over the place. Well, Ernie Eves is a left-wing socialist. I mean, that's, well, I shouldn't be surprised by that, that Jeff. So, so, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, if Eves is sort of not necessarily dead set against it, it's the biggest province, that's going to carry a lot of weight. Uh, yeah, I d- sometimes I wake up and I just can't tell who's left and who's right anymore, but uh, Eves certainly was not dead set against it by any means, and he said he didn't think there'd be any job losses in Ontario, so I don't know. Okay, I want to shift the focus uh, for a final question here today. Uh, the coronation of Paul Martin. More and more stories now that uh, that he, his his uh, triumph is is inevitable, so much so that uh, people are dropping out, if they haven't dropped out officially yet from the unofficial race, that they're soon going to do so. Uh, John Manley said that he felt the party would be best served and the country would be best served if someone were to take on Mr. Martin, at least in terms of debating the issues of the day, and then quickly said, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not the guy to do it. Uh, Sheila Copps is still suggesting that maybe she'll do it for, again for the good of the party and the country, but uh, we're told that uh, they can't raise any money. These The, the other people, are, the money is just absolutely dried up because everybody knows Martin's, uh, Martin's going to win. Uh, what do you make of that? Do you think this will be a coronation or do you think they're going to bother to have a leadership convention? Is anybody dumb enough to stand up and oppose him? Oh, uh, well, certainly people will stand up and oppose him. Um, how far they'll get is, is a good question, but I remember uh, the last time we elected a provincial leader was, was uh, Gerard Kennedy was uh, absolutely going to win. There was no question about it. He was the, the darling of the of the left of the party because of his connections with the food bank. He was the darling of the right of the party because his dad was a, a liberal MP. He had the support of Senator Keith Davey and sort of all the heavyweights and everything, and it was going to be a coronation for the liberal leadership. And then we went off to a convention and, uh, you know, things got delayed and computers weren't working and stuff, and suddenly it's four in the morning and everybody's sleep-deprived, and then we wake up and Donald McGinty's the leader. So you can never tell what's going to happen in politics. Uh, strange things happen. I would never have guessed that uh, Lucien Bouchard was just going to vanish off the radar. Like, that guy was, like, terrifying me. He just seemed so mm-hmm. on, and suddenly he's gone. It's just not the same with the USSR, come to think of it. You know, <laughs> things change, so uh, you never know. And uh, at this point, I, I, I don't know what to make of Martin in the sense that my liberal friends all tell me he's not as right-wing as you think he is, um, but he seems to be the candidate of the right, so I'd be very surprised if you didn't see an Al Rock uh, or somebody like him coming along to say, well, here's the left alternative or left-ish alternative and that that'll form the basis of the uh, of the, of the leadership, uh, that there will be this... Uh, the liberal, liberals are largely sort of leftish and rightish and we sort of fight mm-hmm. internally. Uh, that fight will still happen. 
don't you think there's danger for that individual doing it? I mean, look what happened to uh, the the, uh, the Paul Martin supporters over the last 10 years under Jean Chrétien. <laughs> the people well, that I fought know. Gretchen the last time around have not gone very far in the government. That's true. I know, no question that uh, it's uh, you hit your, your what do you say you hit your you don't hit your wagon to a rising star, but yeah. you hit something to a star. Yeah, hit your wagon to a star, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and so anyway, no, that's right. Everybody's right now sort of trying to to weigh which way do you go, and what do you do if you're a lefty liberal? Like, what do I do? I don't know. <laughs> I can tell you, but I can't say it on the I can't say it on a family radio program. Thank you, gentlemen, both of you. It's a pleasure as always. Jeff Thank Schlemmer you. and Bob Metz with us on Thank this you. edition of Left, Right, and Center. Please do stay with us. We've got lots more coming up this morning right here on Talk of the Town.